If you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. Margaret Thatcher. Hey everybody, welcome to the 10 to 12 podcast, the official podcast of Teamsters Local 1150. I'm Stephen French. And I'm Jason Shoemaker. 166 years ago, in March of 1857, garment workers in New York City staged a protest against low wages and inhumane working conditions. This protest was quickly shut down, but it spawned a tradition in that city of women workers demanding better treatment. It would be almost another 51 years in the March, March of 1908, when an estimated 15,000 women marched on New York City to protest the mistreatment of city textile workers, who were mostly women and children. The marchers demanded an end to child labor, safer working conditions, better pay, and voting rights for women. Their protest inspired women everywhere and eventually led to the declaration of the first International Women's Day three years later, another holiday brought to you by the labor movement. Every March, we observe Women's History Month and International Women's Day, celebrating the contributions of women in the American story. That's what we're doing here today. We're talking about the contributions women have made to the labor movement over the years. It's a long and rich history that spans well over a century and may surprise some listeners. So we're talking about Women's History Month. We're going to talk about some specific women throughout labor history, some specific women in the the Teamster story, right? Um, but we're going to start by talking about an event because I think it's impossible to talk about women in labor history without at least mentioning the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. If anybody knows anything about labor history, they know about this event. Um, it, it's not so much a, a contribution to the labor movement, but a tragic event that brought light to the mistreatment of women in the workplace and and was it was a watershed moment for women's rights especially at work so uh, on march 25th 1911 the triangle shirtwaist company factory located on the top three floors of a manhattan building burned to the ground it killed 146 workers mostly teenage immigrant girls who didn't even speak english triangle was a true sweatshop these girls worked 12-hour days, seven days a week, for about $15 a week, which was even at that time far below the, the current standard. The owners, Max Blanc and Isaac Harris, they refused to install safety features like sprinkler systems, multiple larger fire escapes that were common in the fire-prone textile industry at the time. The factory had three elevators, two of which were broken. They were non-operational. Um, the other one was a long walk down a narrow corridor, which was it was it was hard to get to. So it also had two narrow stairwells, one of which was locked from the outside, believe it or not, um, to prevent workers from stealing stuff, uh, which was something they were paranoid about. Nobody got out with stolen goods that day. No, nobody did. Um, the the other stairwell had a door that opened inward so imagine a, a mad rush to that door um, it opens inward impossible to get people out 
Um, the only fire escape on the building or, or out of the factory part of the building um, was only wide enough to accommodate one person at a time. So when the fire broke out, there were 600 workers in the factory. The manager tried to extinguish the fire with the fire hose, but it had been there for a long time and the hose itself was rotted um, and the valve was rusted shut. So that was futile, right? So much for safety checks back yep. then, huh? Didn't didn't even exist. The elevator, which could carry about 12 passengers at a time, it made four trips and then because of the heat of the fire, the elevator broke down. Wow. So it, it carried, what is that, 48 people um, to safety. So the fire only lasted 18 minutes. So fires were common in the textile industry, and when they went up, they burned fast and hot, right? Yeah. Because you're burning, you know, it's garments, sure. it's material. Um, so the fire only lasted 18 minutes. When it was over, 49 workers were burned to death inside or died of smoke exposure. 36 of them died because they jumped down the elevator shaft after the elevator had broken down. Um, it, this was a desperate attempt for these girls to just get out of the, the, the heat of the fire. Uh, and then another 61 died when they jumped out of the eighth floor window, which is where the fire was, to the sidewalk below. They died from, from the fall. The owners were not even indicted for the negligence, right? They, they had no, no fire safety uh, equipment. Um, they, they didn't upgrade the building. They, they locked a door from the outside. They locked people into a burning building. They, they weren't even indicted, never mind tried. Um, they eventually settled lawsuits uh, by paying 75 cents, uh, sorry, $75 to the families of each of the victims. But here's the kicker. They received $400 per victim from their insurance company. Wow. That's so crazy. It, it, it is crazy. It's a really, it's a really famous story. Um, it spawned a, a lot of conversation about both women in the workplace and how they were treated or really mistreated. Um, and it really was the, the launching event for unions to start talking about safety issues in factories. You have to wonder, what were the laws back then? And were there even laws on the books to hold those owners accountable? Apparently not, because yeah. they were not even indicted for negligence. So, I mean, the fact that they get to keep $325 out of the 400 yeah. that's meant for the families. Yeah, because really that was, um, it, it was such a loss to their business, right? Yeah, I'm sure they cared about them deeply. Yeah, they, they did. So um, so so that's that's a big event, and again... These were women and mostly young girls that were working in this factory. And, um, you know, they were mistreated not just because they were women, but because they were immigrants and, you know, spoke very little English. So, you know, these guys could take advantage of them, right, because they didn't really understand how to fight back or couldn't communicate their fight. And I think that's kind of the essence of what we're talking about today is the women in the, in the labor movement and in the Teamster movement that, you know, really took that fight. Absolutely. So tell us about a Teamster. So first up, we're going to go with one of the most famous Teamster women. Her name is Clara Day. She's from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Um, she married at a young age, moved to Chicago with her husband. And in 1947, she took a job as an information clerk at Montgomery Wards. Uh, soon after, she began noticing a variety of injustices to workers there. 
um, one of which included strict segregation between the black and the white employees. In light of these issues, she decided that she was going to change her workplace, and she became extremely active in, the, in organizing a union, um, and she was successful and officially joined Teamsters Local 743 in 1955. She helped organize 3,000 employees at that time. Um, Shortly thereafter, she was brought onto the staff of Local 743 to represent the workers that she had brought in. In 1976, she was elected to their executive board, and in that same year, she became a founding member of the Teamsters National Black Caucus. Wow. Yeah, she'd actually go on to serve as trustee, recording secretary for more than 20 years. Um, during this time, Clara also served as a business agent and as the local's director of community services. So she did tons of outreach within the community, helping people to find different resources that were available and make new resources available. Um, and at one point, she was actually appointed to serve as a leading member on Chicago's Human Rights Commission. She was extremely influential in bringing uh pay equality and sexual harassment to the forefront of labor's agenda at the time that wasn't something that you know was the main focus yep um and throughout her career she served with distinction on numerous boards committees commissions both you know privately within the teamsters and publicly um throughout the cities and she had a a real mission of making equal rights and justice a reality for women and minorities Uh, One of her proudest moments was serving as a founding member of the Coalition of Labor Women, or I'm sorry, Coalition of Labor Union Women. uh, That was founded in 1974, and she actually helped lead a delegation of union members in the historic March on Washington uh, in the company of Dr. Martin Luther King in 1963. That's pretty awesome. And and, um, I know that CLUW, C-L-U-W, the the Coalition of Labor Union Women is still a really active organization. They're still on the forefront of, um, you know, making sure that that women are properly represented, not just um, in the workforce, but by their unions, right? It's kind of a watchdog uh, group who make sure that um, that women are properly represented by their unions. So that, that's pretty awesome. Um, it looks like she spent, what, 40-ish years? Yeah, she had a long career. Yeah. I think she passed away in 1999. Wow. Um, pretty amazing lady. Um, all right, so I'm going to bring you back in time a little bit further. Um, we're going to talk about Fanny Sellens, who, you know, knowing how my career has gone, back when I first started to do the the newsletter for Local 1150, um, I did a, a labor history piece in each, in each edition, and Fanny Sellens was the first person that I wrote about. Because I just I thought that her life was pretty amazing. Um, Fanny Sellens was she was really known as an organizer. She was an exceptional organizer. She was so good at it that she was called a thorn in the side of the Allegheny Valley coal operators. So, and that's a quote, right? They hated Fanny Sellens. So as we know, right, if you're hated as a unionist, you're doing something right. You're not doing anything wrong. That's the truth. Yep. So um, the operators of, um, uh, the, of the coal mines, they openly threatened her, right? They, they said they were going to get her. Um, after being an organizer in St. Louis for the United Garment Workers local and in West Virginia, um, you know, for the coal companies there, for the coal unions there, in 1916, she moved to Pennsylvania, um, where her work with miners' wives uh, really proved to be an effective way to organize workers across, 
across ethnic barriers. Um, she recruited black workers uh, who originally came north as strike breakers. So she was taking scabs and organizing them. That's that, great. That's pretty awesome. Um, she organized them. She was working for the United Mine Workers of America. So um, during one particular confrontation between uh, like local townspeople and um, armed company guards, because if you don't know anything about union history, um, you need to know that companies hired armed guards during yeah. strikes back then. Uh, this was, you know, it wasn't just carrying a picket sign. Uh, it was, you know, it was... You, you took your life into your hands when you went on strike against your employer back in those days, yeah. especially in the mining industry. They would hire thugs, I mean, oh, just yeah. to straight up fight people on the strike line. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Intimidation the was the name of the game. So, um, so during this one particular confrontation between the townspeople and the company guards, um, it was outside the Allegheny Coal and Coke Company, um, who were the workers were on strike. Um, it was in Breckenridge, Pennsylvania, I guess. Uh, it happened on August 26, 1919. Uh, Fanny and um, a miner, Joe, I can't pronounce this name, Joseph Strzelski, um, they were gunned down. They were shot and killed uh, on a picket line. Um, after a, a coroner's jury and a trial in 1923 ended, um, it, they, they acquitted the two men who were accused of murdering her. So um, it was okay to to kill people on a picket line. Um, Fanny was, you know, one of the first women um, really in the coal industry. She kind of followed in the footsteps of someone we're going to, we're going to talk about um, a little later who mother Jones, who I, I think everybody who knows anything about labor history knows about mother Jones. But um, she kind of followed in Mother Jones's footsteps in the coal industry. And, um, you know, the coal industry was really hard to organize because there was a ton of turnover back in those days. People died. People got sick. They used child labor a lot. Um, so uh, a really common way to organize that industry was using wives and using women um, to kind of get behind the scenes. They, were, they went uh, less noticed than the men did so they kind of did the organizing on behalf of the men and it was it was a tactic that mother jones actually started and uh fanny sellens became really good at it um, which is why they killed her i noticed in my research a lot of the teamster women that came up had husbands that were prominent in either that either the teamster union or other unions and they did like you said kind of work in concert together yep to to bring you know the labor movement forward yeah and with that, it takes us back to another Teamster woman, Maisie Lanham. Um, she was out of Los Angeles. She became the first woman to drive a UPS package car in May of 1943. In October of 1942, with World War II raging, uh, UPS became one of the first, I think, to start hiring women to work in operations uh, throughout the company. Mm. And starting in Seattle and quickly spreading to other cities, uh, women took on jobs of sorting, tracing, routing, and loading packages, pretty much everything the men did. And at the time, men who drove the packages, uh, or package cars rather, and their helpers wore the iconic brown UPS uniforms. They were referred to as the Brown Buddies. The women became known as the Brown Bettys. By 1943, UPS realized they would need to call on women to become drivers of the brown UPS package cars. Lanham started the trend, and a lot more women followed her uh, footsteps. So was this because of the war? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
so that's when women kind of everywhere were getting into um, industry jobs. Yeah. Um, and um, so that's really cool. That I mean, 1943. Right. And, you, you know, people might just think, oh, you're just delivering a package. But this kept our economy moving. You had, you know. Yeah. That yeah. is the essence of commerce. And when men were off fighting the war, uh, you know, the, the women picked up the torch and, and, and kept this country moving. Yeah. And without keeping our economy moving, you can imagine we wouldn't be able to, you know, weather that war as long as yeah, we did. Absolutely. Um, I don't think you can overstate the contribution that women made to this country as a whole, not just the labor movement, but this country as a whole back in the 40s, 80 years ago. Just to jump right in without, you know, you don't think of it now because we are used to women in the workplace, but yep. having gone from, you know, no work experience in a lot of cases to exactly. being the backbone of the United States, yep. it's amazing. And they picked right up. I mean, they were, you know, doing a job like that. They were, they were building bombs. They were, I mean, they were doing all kinds of stuff, yep. right? That to your point, they weren't trained to do. They building. had to just kind of jump in and get it done. A lot of women worked in building munitions. Yeah. Huge amounts. Yeah. Which is really pretty cool it is really cool um so that's that's another another uh teamster woman um i'm going to talk about a woman by the name of rosina tucker um another really prominent woman in um in the development of the labor movement so she was involved in organizing the pullman car company which is another famous um uh, uh, I don't want to call it an event, but the organizing of that company, of the Pullman Car Company, was huge. It was a big event in the development of the American labor movement. Um, everybody knows the name A. Philip Randolph, right? He was really the first prominent black union leader um, in this country. So he was involved in this, but the, um, the, the unionization of the porters, the attendants and maids um, who were working for the Pullman Car Company um, is a really notorious organizing campaign in the American labor history um, and was largely due to the efforts of Rosina Tucker. You know, people talk about A. Philip Randolph, but Rosina Tucker was really at the center of this campaign. Um, she opened up her home. Um, it was on 7th Street in Washington, D.C., and, and that house became the center of operations, almost like the headquarters of operations during um, the, the organizing campaign of the International Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. So, so she, was, she opened up her home and said, hey, we're going to do it right from here. Um, and this was another case of a woman whose husband was a worker there, right? Her husband was a porter. Um, so she took on the task of organizing workers. So uh, because the company routinely fired workers who were suspected of union involvement, that's why Tucker and other wives and women um, got involved in this campaign. And they would go out and visit the homes of, of hundreds of workers to encourage them to join the workers um, or to inform them of, of what progress the union was making. And even after the campaign was successful, they would do this to collect dues, yeah. right? Because it was still kind of dangerous to be in the union, so they would secretly collect dues. Wow. 
So it was really largely due to her efforts, to Rosina Tucker's efforts um, and her success in growing the union's ranks that the union finally won a contract with the Pullman Car Company in 1937. So she spent years doing this, and in 1937, they finally got a contract. So she became the national secretary and the treasurer of the the union's ladies' auxiliary um, because she wasn't a worker. So she she became um, the head of their ladies' auxiliary. She served as a liaison between the union's local and the Brotherhood's president, A. Philip Randolph. So she knew him personally and and was a— was a liaison to him. Um, And then she went on to lead a civil rights movement in Washington, D.C. She was very involved in getting black access to good schools before desegregation even happened. So she was involved in that fight in getting, you know, access to good schools for black students. Um, And then she led efforts to organize unions for uh, domestic workers and laundry workers all over um, Washington, D.C. So she just, you know, she got a taste of this because her husband was involved in a union campaign and she saw an opportunity to help other workers in other industries. So a really, um, really cool lady um, doing stuff behind the scenes, uh, working hard and dedicated really her entire life to both civil rights and workers' rights. It seems like there was a lot back then of people working across industries to kind of lift each other up. Definitely. You, you hear that a lot with you know, these labor history stories where you'd see somebody in one industry working alongside somebody in another. I think it's something that that worked really well in the labor movement back then. And I think it's a flaw of today's labor movement that that we've become, um, you know, we live in silos now. You know, we're Teamsters and and that's what we do, right? We we work with the Teamsters. I think there needs to be a lot more of that outreach to other unions and, and, you know, even if we're not directly representing workers in other industries, we need to be there for them, right? And I don't think we're great at that today, honestly. No, definitely need to make more inroads doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next up, we're going to be talking about Viola Liuzzo. Uh, she was a housewife, a mother, a student, and a civil rights activist. And she was actually murdered by the KKK while participating in a 1965 civil rights march in Selma, Alabama. Uh, Her husband was a business agent in Detroit. They both believed in standing up against injustice, and she was appalled by the events in the South, and she felt compelled to join Dr. Martin Luther King um, and James Hoffa and many other leaders and to head down to Selma. Her death rocked the country and brought heightened attention to the events in Alabama, and actually J. Edgar Hoover, which people know he's kind of got a spotty past, um, he came out and said that... uh, Fearing her death would trigger more civil rights activities, he tried to discredit her completely. Um, They started a smear campaign against her and her family, and these actions really almost destroyed her entire family. So she's another person who died on that bridge in Selma, right? I mean, it's it's such a famous march. Um, Drawing a blank on the name of that bridge, but, you know, um, on that day in 1965, um, that famous march led by Martin Luther King Jr. Um, in Selma, Alabama, a, a, a bunch of people died and were beaten during that march. And and she's one, right? In, yeah, indiscriminately, too. She was a white woman um, yeah. fighting for equality for everybody. How dare she? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but people forget the Teamsters were at the forefront of demanding equality for women, demanding equality for all races. Um, you know, they valued every worker as being the same from the very beginning. Yeah, we still talk about that today. You know, it's it's part of the Teamsters mission statement, you know, the non-discrimination and and um, the idea that the Teamsters see you as a worker and only a worker, right? They don't see us as the things that separate us. They see us as the thing that brings us together, which is work. Brothers and sisters. Yeah, we're brothers and sisters in, in work, right, in labor. The last person I'm going to talk about um, I mentioned already is Mother Jones. Again, if you're familiar at all with labor history, you know who Mother Jones is, or you've heard the name Mother Jones. You've, uh, there's, at, you've at least seen some quotes plastered. Oh yeah, in for a million sure. Different places for sure. Um, she's probably the most quoted labor leader in the history of the labor movement. Um, there's a magazine named after her. A, a magazine about you know the labor movement. Um, is named after her, Mother Jones Magazine. If you don't get it delivered to your house, do it, because it's a really good magazine. Um, so her name was Mary Harris. That was her real name. Um, she was known as Mother Jones. Um, she's, without question, the most famous woman in the history of the American labor movement. Um, she was this tiny little woman. She was about five feet tall. Um, but she was a fearless fighter for workers' rights. I mean, insanely fearless. Um, she was once referred to as the most dangerous woman in America by, at the time, the U.S. District Attorney. Wow. Right? The most dangerous woman in America. Um, she rose to prominence as, again, a fearless organizer in the mining industry. Um, it was back in the 1910s and 1920s. Um, she would give these, these really fiery speeches, these impassioned speeches in support of workers all over the place. Um, her physical voice was powerful. Her energy and passion um, inspired women everywhere into action um, and, and compelled workers' wives and daughters to join the struggle. If, if that didn't work, she would shame men into action. Uh, and I love this quote by her. She once said, I've been in jail more than once, and I expect to go again. If you're too cowardly to fight, I'll fight for you. That's great. That's pretty odd. And she said this to men, right? Not not to other women. She said this to men. So if you're chicken, I'll take on the fight for you because I'm ready for it. Imagine hearing that from a five foot tall woman. Right. An old right. woman too. Like she wasn't young yeah. when she, I mean, she got into this kind of late in her life. That's um, awesome. So Mother Jones, um, she, she would employ any tactic that worked. Like she was so fired up to protect workers, whatever worked. She was willing to do it. Um, she, when it was not popular, she welcomed black workers into the union struggle. Um, she used women and children on picket lines, which was uncommon at the time. She would bring women and children to the picket lines because she thought that it would, um, you know, garner some sympathy from people. Um, she once organized miners' wives into teams. She armed them with mops and brooms, and she put them she like stationed them at the the entrances to mines so that scabs couldn't cross a picket line that is amazing yeah like they were like soldiers guarding guarding the mine entrances against scabs crossing the line um she staged parades and had children carrying signs that read quote we want to go to school not into the mines wow right so um 
<laughs> again, any tactic. Uh, the name Mother Jones was actually given to her after she spoke at the Railway Union Convention in 1897. Um, so the Railway Union workers actually gave her the name Mother Jones. She was so effective that the mine workers sent her into the coal fields to unionize miners. So, you know, she was doing this on her own, all alone, this little old lady um, going into the minefields and, and organizing workers. She traveled to the anthracite fields of eastern Pennsylvania, the company towns of West Virginia, and the coal camps of Colorado, so all over the country. Anywhere coal miners or textile workers or steel workers were fighting to organize a union, Mother Jones went there. Um, she was banished from more towns and locked up in more jails than any labor leader of her time. And she was the country's foremost advocate for child labor reforms. Uh, Mother Jones was not just America's greatest female labor leader. She was America's greatest labor leader, period. She was, in our history, the greatest labor leader who ever lived. Um, her words, the most famous quote from her, mourn the dead, and fight like hell for the living. It, it, it is the most quoted quote in labor history. It's on so many plaques, on so many monuments across the country. Um, again, mourn the dead and fight like hell for the living. So, you know, this is how she lived her life. When people died on the picket lines, she said, yep, let's mourn them and let's keep on moving forward. This is not going to stop us. And despite all that fighting, I think she lived a pretty long life, right? She did. She was 93 years old. Um, she died in, in November of 1930 at the age of 93, um, still uh, still trying to visit picket lines and, and encourage workers to join unions. That's amazing to live to 93 in 1930. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially living the life that she led. Literally could not kill her. Right, could not kill her. <laughs> she died because probably she wanted to. She was yeah, ready. She's like, I'm done. <laughs> Got nothing else to do here. She was ready, so that's it. Mother Jones, the greatest uh, labor leader in the history of our country. That's probably a good spot to leave off. Yeah, I, I, I would say I would say it is. So what do we got? We got some upcoming events? Yeah, so we've got some upcoming events. We've got our April membership meetings in Connecticut. That'll be April 19th. In Alabama, that's going to be the 25th. And in Florida, it'll be April 27th. Here in Connecticut, we have food truck coming. We do. We've got a food truck coming. Uh, for March, we're, we had uh, Micro back. I'm not sure who we're going to have for April, but stay okay. tuned. You'll uh, definitely hear about it. And cool. You will definitely be eating some good food if you come down. Um, we've got the TVC Golf Tournament coming up. That's going to be Saturday, June 24th. It's at Whitney Farms Golf Club in Monroe this year, so a little change of venue should be nice. Yep. Uh, make sure you book that early. Tickets do sell out, and it's awesome. It's a great cause to get involved. Uh, so come down, help out the veterans. The Women's Committee is going to be having breakfast with the Easter Bunny. It's going to be March 25th from 10 to 12. Tickets are $10. Uh, kids under two are free. They're going to have games, crafts, and you could do pictures with the Easter Bunny. So the pictures with Santa was a really um, a, a successful event, um, and um, and people raved about it, thought it was really cool. So um, now we got the Easter Bunny here. Yep. And then coming up in April, on April 2nd, the Futures are going to be planning a barbecue for uh, the Connecticut Futures um, it's going to be April 2nd from 10 to 2 p.m. Where's that? That's going to be at local 1150 Union Hall as well. Cool. So come on down, check it out, get involved. All right. So it was kind of a short episode today, but um, I think it's really important to, you know, to talk about and remember 
the the women who not only built the labor movement, built the Teamsters Union, um, but in in a lot of cases sacrificed a lot so that um, we can enjoy the benefits and and things that we have today uh, from our unions. So um, women really played a huge role in the American labor movement. It's it's important to remember that, that they played an equal role in organizing people across this country and, and making unions what they are today. I think so often we focus on what these women did for other women, and we lose sight of the impact and what they did for the entire labor movement, yeah. men, no, women, no question. everybody included. No question. In fact, you know, you go back to Mother Jones. She wasn't really interested in helping women. She was. She used the wives and the kids to make sure that the men were making a good living. Because back then, right, it was it, the men were, were the bread right. earners, right, period. And um, so she wanted to make sure that she helped women by helping their husbands. She was definitely ahead of her time. Way ahead, yeah. She was pretty Especially awesome. with the shock tactics and the way yeah. that she'd make frame things for people to think. Yep. So um, I want to encourage people, if you're interested at all in, in more of this, just get on Google and Google Mother Jones and read about her, right? There's a lot to read about her. Um, I think she's a super important person to remember and to know about um, and, and maybe get inspired by. So that's about it. Um, as always, we thank you for listening. We thank you for downloading. Thanks for following the 10 to 12 podcast. If you're not following us, shame on you. Go to Podbean right now and follow the 10 to 12 podcast. Remember to let us know what you think about the show. If you love it, let us know. If you hate it, let us know. But let us know something, right? Give us some feedback. Um, email us at comms at teamsters1150.org. That's C-O-M-M-S at teamsters1150.org. Um, And until next time, I'm Stephen French. And I'm Jason Shoemaker. We'll see you again.